The following is a message by Professor Brian Estelle from Westminster Seminary, California. For more information about this message or Westminster Seminary, California, visit us online at www.westcal.edu or call us at 760-480-8474. That's online at www.wscal.edu or call us 760-480-8474. Pray with me. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, indeed you are the one true God, kind and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. We do praise you for Jesus Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. O Lord, grant us that reverence and humility without which no one can understand your truth. Enlighten our minds by your Holy Spirit. For Lord, we do pray, knowing that we are men and women of very dark hearts. We are sinners. O Lord, strip away the lackluster that so often covers our eyes, preventing us from being able to see your word aright. And help us, O Lord, to see it anew and afresh this morning. And as you do so, we will be careful to showcase the glory of Jesus Christ, whom we love and adore, and in whose name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. This morning I've selected for our meditation one particular stanza from the longest psalm in the Psalter. Psalm 119, and if you will turn with me to verses 73 to 80, this is the Yod stanza. This is an acrostic uh, psalm, and this particular stanza, each line begins with the alphabetic consonant Yod from the Hebrew alphabet. So I read verses 73 to 80. This is God's very word. Give careful attention to it. Your hands made me and formed me. Give me understanding to learn your commands. May those who fear you rejoice when they see me, for I have put my hope in your word. I know, O Lord, that your laws are righteous, and in faithfulness you have afflicted me. May your unfailing love be my comfort, according to your promise to your servant. Let your compassion come to me that I may live, for your law is my delight. And may the arrogant be put to shame for wronging me without cause, but I will meditate on your precepts. May those who fear you turn to me, those who understand your statutes. And may my heart be blameless towards your decrees, that I may not be put to shame. Once upon a time, a story began as follows. During the last retreat, when the Chinese and the Army of the North swept down into the south, an old man and his wife fled from their village in the hills and embarked upon a panicky trek along the main road to Seoul and at one point scrambled with other refugees into a roadside ditch to avoid an approaching column of American tanks and jeeps. There they came upon the boy. So begins one of my favorite novelists, Chaim Potok, an author who usually writes about Jewish family life. However, in one of his more recent novels, I Am the Clay, he turns to a very different culture. He turns to the horrors of the Korean War. It is a book about suffering. It is about asking hard questions about where God was in the midst of all the suffering that the characters experience in this book. In this story about two refugees, uh, two South Vietnamese people, undergoing tremendous hardship and affliction during the ravages of this war, Kayam Potok explores the transformation of the character of the old man, one of the main characters in the story. 
At first, he feels the little, almost dead boy that his wife and he have literally stumbled upon in this ditch as one who threatens their very survival because as refugees, they were just barely eking out an existence. But then as the story progresses, so does the character of the old man who begins to show some signs of affection and sympathy and compassion towards the little boy. In this haunting and powerfully moving novel about the unexpected flowering of love in a war-torn country, one of the most striking scenes is a dialogue between the old woman and a young boy who is now recovering from his injuries. And they've bumped into a chaplain, and so the mother or this mother-like figure begins to ask questions. And it goes like this. The woman seemed interested in the chaplain. Does he sing? She wanted to know. The boy said, I've not heard him sing. Tell me if he ever sings this song, she said, and sang for uh, him in her quavering voice. Have thine own way, Lord, have thine own way. Thou art the potter, I am the clay. The boy asked her what the words meant. She said, once I knew, embarrassed, but I have forgotten. It is the language of the foreigners. Close quote. Now, these words of the old woman are so fitting for the saints of God, it seems. Have thine own way, have thine own way. Thou art the potter, I am the clay. For we as pilgrims, too, are prone to forget the meaning of this simple truth. God gives us supreme examples in his scriptures and teaches our hearts how to sing these often foreign words again and with understanding as opposed to forgetfulness. And this stanza in Psalm 119 is just such an example. Now, there's a lot of repetition in this long acrostic psalm, but there is movement in the psalm, and those who have studied this long psalm very closely notice that certain stanzas are marked off by certain themes. And in fact, the pre- previous two stanzas, that is uh, Tet and Chet and uh, the Zion uh, passage as well, have as a major theme uh, reflective meditation upon past afflictions. And this stanza that we're looking at this morning in particular is an apt conclusion to these reflections about afflictions. So first of all, I'd like to look at the confession of faith that is evident in this particular stanza. And then secondly, the assurance of faith. And lastly, the hope of faith. So first of all, the confession of faith. Here the indicative is set up right before our eyes. Notice how the stanza begins with a bold confessional assertion about God. The psalmist acknowledges that God's hands have made him. Here perhaps is an implicit repetition of what is also comes out in Psalm 138 verse 8. The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Your love, O Lord, endures forever. Do not abandon the works of your hands. For notice how the psalmist begins in our stanza. Your hands have made me. They have formed me. Give me understanding to learn your commands. Here's confession of faith right up front. Perhaps even a key to unlocking one of the principles which will uh, follow in order to help us understand our afflictions. Notice verse 73. Your hands have made me. They have formed me. Give me understanding to learn your commands. It seems that the psalmist understands his distinction as a creature of God. God is his creator. 
And because of that key distinction, here is a challenge to the psalmist and to all of us. We are not to measure God by our own affections. We are not to measure God by our own emotions. We are not to imagine God according to our own perceptions of how we see things and how we experience things. Not always. He is God, and we should cry out for understanding him aright, especially during times of affliction. Think of the prophet Isaiah in that well-known and famous passage from Isaiah 55. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. And now back to our stanza. In verse 75, we get the final confession of the psalmist with regards to his affliction. Notice what he says. I know, O Lord, that your laws are righteous, and in faithfulness you have afflicted me. And this is not the first statement regarding affliction. For throughout this psalm, you see this theme and this leitmotif come up time and time again. And the same kind of confession come forth from the psalm writer. Notice verse 67 and 71. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I obey your word. Verse 71, it was good for me to be afflicted so that I might learn your decrees. Once again, this psalm teaches us something about suffering. Suffering teaches us lessons that we cannot learn in bookish type of knowledge. You may have been to college and university. You may have been to some of the most prestigious universities in the land. You may be a seminary uh, student at one of the best seminaries in the country. But the fact of the matter is, you will learn a lot through suffering that you will not learn in your books here at seminary or books throughout your life through mere reading or bookish knowledge. Suffering and affliction bring us to know God better. Notice the second point, assurance of faith. Not only is there confession of faith here, but there's surely assurance of faith as well. Notice also here the assurance of faith, an assurance that comes through community. Notice verse 74, and then reiterated in verse 79, that we have a very important principle that will help us in our sufferings and afflictions. The principle was first stated in verse 63 of Psalm 119. I am a friend to all who fear you, to all who follow your precepts. But here in verse 74, and then again in verse 79, the theme of the God-fearing community is taken even further. Notice verse 74. May those who fear you rejoice when they see me, for I have put my hope in your word. And now look at verse 79. May those who fear you turn to me, those who understand your statutes. Now here is an important principle taught in these two verses. When a believer finds himself or herself in trouble, where may she or where may he turn? He or she may turn to the community in order to alleviate or at least help with those sufferings. How many Christians do we know who have found strength and courage when they turn to their brothers and sisters in trust and confidence. And their brothers and sisters offer up a word in order to lift up and buoy their spirits. You see, my friends, when your brothers and sisters are tormented and scared and frightened, they need encouragement and hope. 
And that's the kind of language that the psalmist was experiencing from those round about him. And that's the kind of language we need to employ in order to bolster one another when we are hard-pressed by all the vicissitudes of this pilgrim life. Courage is contagious. Have you ever noticed that? Courage is contagious. It's true in the physical realm, it's true in the emotional realm, and it's also true in the verbal realm. When you're going down a river and you're about ready to go into a big hole, when you're out on the seas of Alaska and it's blowing 80 and water's coming up over the gunnels and you've gotten a little greedy and have more fish on your boat than you should, when you're hanging 2,000 feet off the deck and you can see all the way down and you drop something and it doesn't hit the wall on the way down, you need to hear an encouraging word. If that's true in the physical realm, how much more so in the spiritual realm? Courage is contagious. Notice, a good Christian man or woman, boy or girl, you can tell will be encouraged based upon what those round about him or her have to say. And this helps us fix our eyes on Jesus who is a tested stone, Isaiah said, a precious cornerstone for a sure foundation. The one who trusts will never be dismayed. There is one, Isaiah says further, who bears our griefs and carries our sorrows. And together with the Apostle Paul, those of you who are afflicted can say, if we are distressed, it is for your comfort, 2 Corinthians 1.6. And if you are afflicted, we can say, it is... We are comforted, it is for your comfort, which produces in you patient endurance of the same sufferings we suffer, the Apostle Paul says. Or you can say with the Psalmist David, I am still confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong. Take heart. Wait for the Lord. But if there's an exhortation for us concerning how we might encourage our brothers and sisters during times of trials and sufferings, there's also a warning here, or at least an implicit warning. And that is that if one who is undergoing affliction and suffering, which you all will, or you all are, because it is part and parcel of our pilgrim existence here on earth, where will you go if the community to which you ought to turn for encouragement and support is full of divisive factions? You see the importance of preserving the unity in the community even for the sake of booing up the spirits of those who are downtrodden. But implicitly, at least, if our communities are full of strife and full of division, then we will not have anywhere to go. The church is committed and should be committed to patient, gentle peacemaking and to lifting up the downtrodden through community as well as individual efforts. But not only is there the confession here of the saints, not only is there assurance of faith here, but also notice there is the hope of faith. And I want you to turn to verse 76 here and notice how this opens the way for several other petitions on the part of the psalmist. May your unfailing love be my comfort according to your promise, according to your servant, according to the promise to your servant. Notice how this relates to our theme about affliction. 
the psalmist now prays for relief from his affliction. But how does he pray for relief from his affliction? Does he pray that it might depart from him like the apostle prayed regarding his thorn in the flesh in 2 Corinthians? No. He does not ask that God would remove the circumstances that were so troubling him. Rather, this psalmist asks for this very thing. Everything he needs and everything he asks for centers around a desire to have a real sense of God's merciful kindness upon his soul. In other words, it does not matter who you are or what you have. What can truly cheer the soul during a time of affliction and anguish and trouble? All of you surely have experienced this, and this makes a natural extension to the previous point. You may turn to a trusted brother or sister for comfort and consolation and encouragement, but you may find that they are sorely disappointing in the encouragement they offer. So where do you turn? God alone can speak to the heart. And that's what the psalmist does. It's God alone who can cheer the soul ultimately during a time of affliction and anguish and trouble. Look to the only one who can provide such comfort and guard yourself from drinking from any other cistern except the one that can truly cheer and revive the soul. The psalmist asks for this one thing, to know the merciful kindness of the Lord, and he turns his face towards the only face that can give him comfort. As the Apostle Paul will later say, 2 Corinthians 4, 6, God made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Notice the petitions that follow that opening statement here. Let your compassion come to me, that I may live, for your law is my delight. May the arrogant be put to shame for wronging me without cause, but I will meditate on your precepts. And then verse 79, which we've already discussed. You see, my dear friends, the thing that the psalmist is praying is that the distinguishing character of God might be truly known to him. And that character is not merely full of mercies, but that character is full of tender mercies. Psalm 51.1 Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Psalm 79.8 Do not hold against me the sins of the fathers. May your mercy come quickly to meet us, for we are in desperate need. Psalm 103.13 as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. These petitions, these promises, these words of assurance all form a fitting conclusion to this section that has to do with understanding a saint's affliction. In conclusion, where is this abundant, overflowing spring from which we can draw encouragement in the midst of trials and tribulations? It's to be found in Christ the fountainhead of mercy. In shadowy form, but very clearly because of its allusions back to the first stanza in this particular psalm, such a refuge is found in verse 80. Notice what the Psalter says. May my heart be blameless towards your decrees that I may not be put to shame. This closing verse recalls the whole opening of this particular psalm in the first stanza. And this is especially the case since some of the exact vocabulary expressed there in that stanza shows up in this particular verse. 
Look, for example, at verse 1 and 6 of Psalm 119. Blessed are they whose way is blameless, who walk according to the law of the Lord. Then I would not be put to shame when I consider all your commands. Do you see, people of God? Here's a wistful hope. Surely not an ideal achieved. For a soundness, a completeness that renders those who have achieved it secure from shame. Here is expressed a hope for the fulfillment of an ideal, one that can only be fulfilled in the person and the life of Jesus Christ. It is only in the crucified and risen Christ that we can really understand our afflictions and sufferings aright. We don't have to be embarrassed when asked what the words mean, Have thine own way, Lord, have thine own way. Thou art the potter, potter, I am the clay. We don't have to say, Once I knew the meaning of these words, but now I have forgotten. It is the language of foreigners. No, my friends, that is the language of the people of a book, the book. A book of which the whole is the story of the entrance of sin and evil into the world and God's decisive victory over it. Do you expect the vindication of God's conduct in every situation? Or do you want encouragement and motivation to trust God despite unexplained evil, suffering, and affliction? The conclusion of the matter is this. If you are a Christian, then everything that happens to you is for your sanctification and growth, period. If you are a Christian and you want to, at least in part, understand your afflictions and others, then do these things. Confess that God is good. He is your creator. Draw assurance and encouragement from the people around you. But finally, have hope in drawing upon the mercies of God. If you do not feel and experience his tender mercies, then beg of him that he would reveal himself to be to you what he really is. For in our Lord Jesus Christ, in his completeness, in his substitutionary atonement, in his penalty-paying substitution, and in his probation-keeping, in his righteous life, is found a place of peace and contentment, so that one may say with true sincerity of heart, Have thine own way, Lord, have thine own way, thou art the potter. I am the clay. Shall we pray? Almighty God, we thank you for your word. You are so gracious in providing it to us. O oh Lord, we thank you that in this altar especially, we find all the emotions to which we are subject throughout our life and existence. And we thank you, O oh Lord, that indeed you give this to us to buoy up our spirits, perhaps to even minister to us now, but if not now in the future, when we may undergo some unforeseen affliction. O Lord, store up these things in our mind. Use them according to your perfect good pleasure. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. You've been listening to a message from Westminster Seminary, California. For more information about this recording or Westminster Seminary, California, visit us online at westcal.edu or call us at 760-480-8474. That's online at wscal.edu or call 760-480-8474.